Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> This show was first podcast on March the 4th, 2019. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we plant the seeds of weird and wonderful science directly into your fertile imagination. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this episode, Ben Kiernan talks about researching the science of producing science podcasts and the science podcast he produces. But first up, here's news of faster-than-light space drives patented by the US Navy. Starship engines? Last week I briefly mentioned that Salvatore Cesar Pais has been filing patents for the US Navy on breakthrough technologies. This week I'll focus on his proposed spaceship motor that doesn't need rockets, which he describes in his 2016 patent, Craft Using an Inertial Mass Reduction Device. Inertia means that objects resist changes to their motion. When you fire a rocket, you're fighting inertia to make your spaceship move. If you could reduce the inertial mass of the spaceship, then it would take much less energy in the form of fuel to make that spaceship move. Science fiction writers have used inertialist drives as ways of making their far future spacecraft go faster than rockets could ever make them go. In some stories, inertialist drives allow them to travel faster than light. The patent says that his inertial mass reduction device is based on a cavity with microwave emitters. The inner wall of the cavity is insulated and the outer shell is electrically charged. The emitters create high-frequency microwaves throughout the cavity, causing the cavity to vibrate at its resonant frequency, like a bell. This creates a local polarised vacuum outside the outer resonant cavity wall. A local polarised vacuum is a description of the quantum vacuum froth, or the quantum vacuum plasma. In quantum field theory, a vacuum is not just empty space, but a place where tiny amounts of matter and antimatter and light can come into existence, make a difference, and then disappear again. When you apply a changing electromagnetic field in the form of microwaves to the vacuum, then these electromagnetic fields move the tiny amounts of matter and antimatter, and this movement reduces the measurable intensity of the original electromagnetic fields by screening them. This dielectric screening of the electromagnetic fields has been measured for several decades. So how does that help us reduce inertia? The patent states in its background that electromagnetic fields act as carriers for energy and momentum. Matter is confined energy, bound within fields, frozen in a quantum of time. Pais basically argues that applying high-frequency electromagnetic waves to a polarised vacuum can cause the weird quantum effects normally confined to the tiny scale to reach out and affect the macroscopic world of a spaceship. 
He also says that if you put the right rotation and energy on the electromagnetic waves you beam into the vacuum, you could use the energy from the electromagnetic waves that appear and disappear, the quantum vacuum plasma. The Casimir effect is an old demonstration of getting energy from the quantum vacuum plasma. Casimir suggested that we put two metal plates very close together. The quantum vacuum throws up electromagnetic waves of all wavelengths. These waves have to fit between the metal plates, so only short waves form between the plates. Long waves and short waves form outside the plates. The higher concentration of light outside the plates causes a pressure that pushes the plates together. If you electrically charge the plates to repel each other, then it takes work to make the plates come together. When you do the experiment, the plates are drawn together, getting work from the vacuum for free, despite violating the law of conservation of energy. We don't use the Casimir effect to generate power, because once the plates are together, it takes work to separate them again. Pais claims that you could get an amplification of the energy you put into your high-frequency, high-energy microwaves, so you get out more than you put in. He also says that the result would be a repulsive force caused by an anti-gravity effect from the quantum vacuum plasma that reduces the inertial mass, so you can push your spacecraft with much less resistance. He also claims that inertia is also caused by resistance from the electromagnetic fields of the space you want to move through, which a lot of people agree with. And by applying his spinning, vibrating, high-frequency, high-energy microwaves, he can reduce that resistance. This, Pais claims, would allow extreme speeds. So you spin things while vibrating them, while they emit high-energy, high-frequency microwaves, and you cause a change in the nature of your vacuum such that it reduces the inertia of your spaceship and you can push it very fast indeed. How fast? The year before publishing this patent, Pais published a paper in the International Journal of Space Science and Engineering titled Conditional Possibility of Spacecraft Propulsion at Superluminal Speeds. In other words, faster than light. In the paper, Pais says he doesn't break special relativity, but builds on it. He argues mathematically that if your spacecraft reaches half the speed of light, and at that moment you're able to reduce the inertial mass somehow, then light speed is no longer a barrier. In the patent, Pais quotes his own paper and says that one way to reduce your mass so that you can boost to faster than light speed is to artificially generate your own gravity fields. The engine reduces the resistance of the vacuum ahead of the spacecraft to such a degree that, he says, it would suck in the spacecraft, propelling it forward. Pais next invokes the Gertzenstein effect from 1960, which states that light passing through a strong magnetic field will cause wave resonance that will generate gravitational fields. This way he says you can create gravity waves that will propel your spacecraft as it's sucked into the less than empty space ahead of it with much less inertial mass, taking it to the speed where you can boost it to faster than light. He next quotes research 
that showed a reduction in the mass of spinning gyroscopes, but which is controversial because it wasn't able to be replicated. He says that the researchers who failed to get mass reduction in their gyroscopes didn't replicate the experiment properly. He thinks that the reported weight reduction in the gyroscopes could have been caused by the quantum vacuum plasma. Finally, Pais suggests that the space drive could also be used in a submarine which could move very fast with zero friction from the water and which would be invisible to radar and sonar. He goes on to say that the submarine could also be an aircraft, that similarly there would be no air resistance because of the space drive. In fact, the same craft could be used under the water, in the air, and in space. I take it that this space drive that amplifies intense oscillating microwaves to create gravity waves to push your submarine aircraft spaceship through a reduced inertia field that sucks in your craft until you get to the magic speed of half of light speed in a vacuum that lets you then accelerate suddenly to faster than light speeds has not been built in a working form yet. I want to see it go. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Science Podcast Research According to his Twitter profile, Ben Kiernan is a professional science communicator, an amateur adult, and host of the non-peer-reviewed podcast. He's also an academic researcher into what makes science podcasts popular. We spoke using Discord, and I began by asking Ben, which came first, his science podcast research or his science podcast? I started researching science podcasts, in particular, what makes a science podcast popular. And I decided when I started, I was going to take it very clinical, I was going to not really partake in podcasting. I was just going to observe and look and see what was out there. And then six months later, I was well and truly into podcasting, listening to podcasts all the time and thought, you know what? I should start a show. Let's do this. So I actually started it as part of my Masters of Science Communication at the Australian National University as part of the subjects they have there because part of my master's had some coursework and they have a really good subject called science and the web and as part of that you need to create a science communication product which you can share online and have it be you have to use the info like the the theory and the things we learned in class to then share it and have it be seen by people i decided to make a podcast we were only required to make eight bits of content and i enjoyed it so much i kept doing it and i've just recorded episode 31 so well and truly beyond the scope of the assignment wonderful and to do a masters of science communication do you need a science background or what is your background before that i am 
a bit of a weirdo. Academically speaking. And I guess personally. Um, <laughs> so I originally left high school and did a diploma of screen where I focused on animation. Then finishing that, I decided I wanted to keep doing that kind of stuff. So I did a Bachelor of Interactive Entertainment, game creation, game design. I focused on animation. And then when I eventually came back into academia several years later, I did a Bachelor of Science majoring in physics. I completed an honors in physics. And in my undergraduate science, I did a second major in science communication. And that led me down to the the Masters of Science Communication. Have you done animation with your science interests? No. I'd combine those two things. I've done lots of graphic design work, lots of editing work, but no animation work. I think those skills are a little rusty and need some polishing. Because that, that would be a YouTube sort of thing, I guess. Yeah, so originally I was thinking of doing a YouTube channel, and that's still maybe on the cards at some point, but... Through my research and my love of podcasts, this is what I'm doing currently. And so when you looked into what makes a science podcast popular, what did you discover? So I want to clarify that my research is still has not gone through peer review. I'm still working on the paper. And with all those things said, the number one tip for having a popular podcast is unfortunately to be backed by a corporation or a large organization like PBS or NASA or be part of a network of other podcasts like Gimlet Media because those kind of organizations usually help with advertising, producing, editing and they usually create higher quality podcasts. But it doesn't mean that there isn't hope for amateur podcasts. There are some, some features that popular science podcasts have that can be emulated by non-professionally backed podcasts. So having lots of people working on it, lots of resources and a distribution network all help to make the science podcast more popular. Yeah. Uh, I didn't look at any of like advertising budgets or um, the extent of their social media networks. So those professionally backed podcasts probably have, I can't say for certain, but most likely have a large advertising budget, for example, and people to manage their social media accounts beyond the creators of the podcast. And how do you get information about how popular the science podcasts are? So I used a website called Podbean, which gives pretty decent numbers of subscribers to to podcasts. So that's a limitation of my research. I could only look at podcasts that I could find on Podbean. And the numbers on Podbean are probably not complete. They are not fully representative of the actual number of followers. But because I was comparing them, they would give me comparative numbers of followers. Right. That that makes sense. You've got to have consistent information. Yeah. So you're looking into what makes them popular, and the biggest thing is to have big resources. And you've got, obviously, as you said, there's Gimlet Media, there's ABC, there's all sorts of organisations that either do podcasts as their main thing or do it as a side thing. Guess that makes it hard for the majority of independent podcasters to compete. Yeah, but the next two most statistical 
things that make a podcast popular are how old the podcast is and how many episodes they released. So older podcasts tend to have more subscribers, which makes sense. You know, if you're around longer, you accumulate more followers. And if you're around longer, you also release more episodes. So that does give hope to if you've been around for a longer time, you will eventually get more following. <laughs> and then you just got to work out if it's enough to make it worthwhile. Yeah. Well, also, so my research was very much a snapshot of late 2018. So I wasn't looking at podcasts that maybe started off as amateur podcasts, gained popularity, and then were picked up by a larger podcast company. So what do you make of the rise of the Australian Podcast Awards? I think it's really good. One day I'd like to win one. <laughs> Podcasting is a relatively new media form. It obviously has its roots in radio production, but it's good to see representation and acknowledgement of Australian pod being well-produced, well-made, having followers, those kinds of things. It's been interesting to see. I think this is the third one they've had and there's you know obviously more to come but it does seem that they've followed the road that you've suggested there that they used to be interested in almost any podcast and now it's only the well-resourced ones from the big organizations that seem to have even nominations let alone chances of winning yeah well part of that i think is so there's this well-documented feature of the internet where the most popular things become more popular faster than less popular things and so if you were to say you were to graph the popularity of podcasts they would fall on this exponential curve so the most popular ones are you know orders of magnitude more popular than the next one and then the next one so maybe maybe the most let's say the most popular one has a thousand subscribers. The next most popular maybe has 500 and then 200 and then 50 and then 40 and then 10. Like it's, it's it. The big ones are really big and the middle ones are still big. And then it just drops down to this kind of average amount of subscribers. Mm. So it makes sense that those big podcasts are going to be recognized more often. It's just the nature of the beast. And you said you basically you've found that making podcasts is fun and so you've kept doing it and you're you're well along the path now. What sort of stories catch your attention for the non-peer reviewed podcast? So I look at things which not just interest me, um, but that probably shows given the number of space stories show up on the show. But things that I feel are going to capture an average person's interest because i my show while it does have a science academic kind of basis to it i want the like i i make the show so that my dad on the way to work can listen to it and get something from it and then enjoy it and understand it I, i'm aiming for the average person to try and get science to them which is something a lot of science communicators do. And it's, it's, I feel it's very important that we kind of acknowledge the science literacy of society and don't necessarily pitch things way down too low. But at the same time, a lot of jargon, a lot of 
scientific concepts, they are very much above the average person. And so I try to, I don't know, I try to, to make science accessible and I'm trying to make interesting things. And a lot of science news is interesting. It's just hard to read. <laughs> yes, yes. You've got to be able to understand the press release and perhaps the paper as well and then translate it into ordinary language. Yeah, press releases can be really useful, but they're often not really, like they're not written the way a news story is written. And I believe the term is they bury the lead. Yes. Which is, you know, like the most interesting part, the part that would be the first sentence, the part that catches your attention to, oh, this is why this story is cool, is often several paragraphs down, buried in walls of text about who wrote it and why it's interesting without getting to that, that nugget of, of why it's actually cool. Exactly right. I think that's kind of the way I operate when I'm looking for interesting stories as well. And... On a slightly sideways note, how did you happen to call it the non-peer-reviewed podcast? So I wanted a podcast which was going to be fun and have a kind of comedy humor-esque nature to it. I originally was thinking, you know, three scientists walk into a bar, but apparently that show exists for two seasons sometime in the early 2000s. So I thought maybe not associate with that and also with advertising and and whatnot so i eventually was tossing around ideas and i came up with the non-peer-reviewed podcast because i wanted my guests to be able to be on the show and not feel restricted to say certain things you know if i'm if i'm saying a fact you know say if i say that humans sneeze at roughly 65 kilometers an hour that's something I've remembered, and I don't know if it's 100% true. So my show is non-peer-reviewed. I am a non-peer-reviewed person. The things I am saying have not gone through academic scrutiny. I don't want someone to quote my show professionally because what we're saying might be wrong. It's funny, it's quirky, and it kind of explains what the show is about. And so can you give us an example of um, one of the bits of science that caught your eye recently that was fun well if this is a subtle way to plug you being on my show we just recorded an episode and we had a great bit about a study showing that sleeping on the weekend sleeping in on the weekend doesn't make up for lost sleep and that's the kind of thing that a lot of people have experienced trying to sleep in catch up on sleep and that's a study that says no it doesn't actually work that way and we can talk about that. And if people want to listen to the non-peer-reviewed podcast or find you on social media, where do they look? You can find non-peer-reviewed podcast at non-peer-reviewed, or one word, on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. The official title is non-peer-reviewed because that's the grammatically correct way. But it's easier to search on Twitter that way. You can find me, Ben Keenan, on Twitter at Ben. K-E-I-R-N-A-N on Twitter. I talk about science and a lot of pop culture things and D&D &D and gaming. It's, it's all over the shop. I, um, I don't have a brand as such except for science and pop culture. There's actually, before I go, there's one more bit of information that can make your podcast popular mm. and successful. It's keeping to a schedule. If you 
release episodes weekly, being consistent to that weekly schedule is very important, especially to people who integrate podcasts into their lives. If I'm washing up dishes on a Tuesday, I want to know that I'm going to be listening to you know, my favorite Tuesday podcast. And if it's not there, that messes with my schedule. I think that's an important lesson. Well, thank you, Ben, very much. That's an interesting bit of research that's led to you practicing what you were studying. Thank you, Ian, for having me on the show. That was Ben Kiernan, producer of the non-peer-reviewed podcast and science podcast researcher at the Australian National University. You can hear Ben and I, with a second guest, discuss the week's science stories on the next peer-reviewed podcast episode. Sneezers actually travel 160 kilometres an hour. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email with a question I can answer on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Sound and facts checked by Charles Willock. The news music was Rhinos themed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station, 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com diffusionradio or make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolfe. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.